Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. We should be good to go now. Uh, If you all would go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Luke. We're calling this An Unexpected King. Now, I haven't really talked about how this... uh, this little mini-series that we're in right now, with where Jesus is pointing out the problems with religion, um, I haven't really talked about how that relates to Jesus being an unexpected king. But when you look at the, the, the Jews in that time, they would not have expected a king, a new king coming in, to have such animosity towards the religion, towards the religious leaders there. Um, you look throughout the history, uh, throughout the Old Testament, uh, Israel was a, what we would call a theocratic monarchy. Basically, it's a king under the authority of God. That's a theocratic monarchy. The king is surrendered to God, and the, the king is supposed to be working on God's behalf. All right, so that's the theocratic monarchy. For the king to come in and have such animosity towards the religious establishment, well, that's not typically how a theocratic monarchy would work. And so this, Jesus' kingship here is very unexpected. And we're continuing this little uh, Problems with Religion miniseries. Uh, we're in Problems with Religion Part 4. We're in Luke 12. It's going to be verses 8 through 12. Um, and this morning, the problem with religion is that religion denies Jesus' deity. Religion denies Jesus' deity. Uh, I've got this text broken down into uh, three divisions. Um, verses 8 and 9. There's public acknowledgement. Verse 10 is unforgivable sin. And then verses 11 and 12 is on trial for faith. So I'm going to pray and then we'll get going. Let us pray. Dear Lord, as we open up your word, change us from the inside out. Help us to be who you created us to be. Help us surrender more to you each and every day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so since this is part four, let's do just a little bit of a recap. All right, so part one, Jesus was invited to dinner at a Pharisee's house, but when he got there, the Pharisee criticized Jesus for not following the Jewish tradition. Jesus quickly turned the tables on him and showed uh, showed how the Pharisee's religious legalism was keeping them out of heaven and was going to do the, uh, the same for others. Jesus showed us that legalism is opposed to the gospel. And then in part two, A scribe was standing by, watching this conversation Jesus was having with the the Pharisee, and he was offended by something that Jesus said. And since he was sure that Jesus didn't really mean to offend the scribes too, he asked. But again, Jesus quickly pointed out that their heartless regard for religious legalism was just as bad as the Pharisees. So Jesus showed us that religion is insulted by the gospel. And then part three, last week, we saw that uh, Jesus warned his disciples of the yeast of the Pharisees. He warned them to watch out for the hypocrisy and to make sure that it did not sneak into their lives. The main idea of that sermon was that religion has no authority, but it acts like it does. This morning, we're finishing this little mini-series on Jesus' criticism of religion. Again, this is uh, Problems with Religion Part 4, and it is that religion denies Jesus' deity. And we're going to start right here in verse 8. Uh, Starting in verse 8, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, the Son of Man will also acknowledge in the presence of God's angels. But anyone who denies me here on earth will be denied before God's angels. So Jesus starts with this little phrase, I tell you the truth. This seems like an unnecessary statement. Jesus 
is God. He is perfect. He is sinless. He does not lie. So when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's almost like saying that the sun is bright or like saying that salt is salty. Duh, right? Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. Well, yeah, he's God. He's perfect. He's telling us the truth. No matter what he says, he's telling us the truth. But we also understand that not everyone in the crowd that day recognized the deity of Jesus. Not everybody recognized the sinlessness of Jesus. Definitely in the crowd, there would have been some doubters, those who didn't believe in the sinlessness of Jesus. Now, we know that Jesus wouldn't lie, but they might not know that. As I was going through this, I was reminded of something uh, that I used to say when I was preaching. Uh, Over the years, my preaching has changed, hopefully for the better, uh, as I get more experience and, and I work to better represent God's truth. But I can remember there were times not so long ago that, I, that during the sermon, I would say something like, can I be honest with you for a moment? And I was kind of convicted with that because you would hope that I'm always being honest with you, especially from the pulpit. So I try not to say that anymore. And then I found myself starting sentences or statements with, honestly, well, then again, that's the same problem, right? Um, I realized how it, could, how it would come across. So I try not to say that from the pulpit anymore. I actually try not to say that anymore ever because I do try to be honest with you, my whole life. Um, then, uh, so, like I said, hopefully after years of preaching, I'm getting better. But I don't think Jesus was being careless with his words. I don't think what Jesus is saying would be something that he would look back at later and say, ooh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. I don't think he's being careless with his words. I think he's saying this because he's really trying to draw attention to the statement that he's about to make while recognizing that there are some in the crowd who don't recognize who he is. They don't realize that Jesus is God. But what is the super important statement he's trying to make? He says, Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, the Son of Man will also acknowledge in the presence of God's angels. I'm going to go ahead and address this point up front. I don't think this is talking about reposting pictures or scriptures on social media. You see that often. You see that a lot. Right? I don't think that's what this is talking about. But I do think that this means that we are not supposed to be secret Christians. We are supposed to live our life in such a way that others can tell that we are Christians. On top of that, we are supposed to evangelize, proclaim the gospel to those who do not believe it. For those in countries and cultures that are more hostile to the gospel, obedience to this scripture becomes more difficult or possibly nuanced. But for us, living here in Hope Mills, for us in this room, we don't face the same danger of persecution as other Christians around the world. Our risk of sharing our faith, the actual risk there is extremely low. There might be some risk of social ostracization, that's the word, uh, being social outcast. Uh, Those of us in public school settings or in other public offices, we might have to be more tactful in our approach, but living out our faith In our context, it's a pretty low risk. But as Christianity becomes less popular and our country moves increasingly into a post-Christian worldview, that will change. Acknowledging Jesus publicly will be more costly for us in the future. But since we're not there yet, we need to practice now and build those habits now so that when that time comes that it is more costly for us, the behaviors are already ingrained in our lives. Then Jesus says, anyone who denies me here on earth will be denied before God's angels. Now, this seems pretty obvious. It's just the opposite of what I just said. 
But I haven't yet talked about the setting Jesus is talking about. I haven't talked about when or where Jesus is talking about here. What's he talking about when he says in the presence of God's angels or before God's angels? Well, last week I talked about some of the events that will happen at the end of time. We will be resurrected with perfected eternal bodies. Then we will stand in front of God for judgment. All who are guilty of sin will be sent away to an eternity in hell. And all who are innocent will be welcomed into God's perfect eternal kingdom in the new heaven and new earth. It's this judgment day that Jesus is talking about here in the presence of God's angels. At this judgment, the courtroom will be filled with God's angels. We have a problem, though. It's a big problem. See, we've all sinned. We are all guilty of sin. That means that at this judgment, we are all deserving of the punishment. And that's eternity in hell. That's a major problem. And there's nothing that we can do to hide our sin. There's no way that we can atone for our sins. This is where the gospel comes in. Jesus tells us, starting in uh, John 3, starting in verse 16, Jesus says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. Because of God's love, Jesus came to save us from our sins. He came and took our punishment for us. The punishment that we deserve was poured out on him on the cross. We place our faith in him. When we place our faith in him, he saves us from an eternity in hell that we deserve. And he declares us to be righteous. He lived a perfect and righteous life. He didn't deserve the punishment, but he took our punishment and gives us his righteousness. Our guilt is paid for, and we are welcomed into heaven. When we get to that judgment day, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we are not going to be judged according to our sins because they've already been paid for. They've already been taken care of. Instead, we're going to be judged according to Jesus' life. Now, looking back at this passage in Luke 12, is Jesus saying that in order to be saved, we have to proclaim him? Well, I don't think so. Actually, I'm pretty sure that's a no. I'm definite that's a no. It's a dangerous precedent to begin to say that there's anything that we must do, any action or any deed that we can do to earn salvation. That precedent, thinking that we have to do something, that adds some act that must be done to complete our salvation, suggesting that Jesus' sacrifice isn't enough. Adding some prerequisite action to salvation denies Jesus' deity. That line, that line of thinking very quickly turns into legalism, and we are right back, right there, sitting with the Pharisees and the scribes in their legalism and their hypocrisy. We have succumbed to their yeast. We have bought into their legalistic religion. No, salvation is a free gift that we can only receive or reject. What Jesus is saying is that when we place our faith in him, it will change our lives. We place our faith in him and he is our Lord. The love and admiration that we have for saving us will show in our lives. We proclaim him because we are saved. We don't proclaim him to become saved. It's after the fact. We proclaim him because we are saved. As we continue to surrender to him, we become more like him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And after salvation, we will acknowledge him publicly. 
But if we deny him publicly, that cause serious question over your salvation. We must be careful not to think, though, that this sin is unforgivable. Even the sin of denying Jesus could be forgiven if we eventually come to faith in him. That sounds crazy, right? Denying Jesus is not an unforgivable sin. Read what Jesus says next. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So it starts off right there. It's what I just said. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven. If you thought I was crazy when I just said what I just said, that denying Jesus could be forgiven, Jesus says it right here. Even though Jesus said earlier that anyone who denies him will be denied at judgment, he does still offer an opportunity for forgiveness. If you've ever stood down or shut your mouth when you should have spoken up for Jesus, there's still the opportunity for for forgiveness. Even if you have failed in the past, you can still be forgiven. Jesus says anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. All right, so now, now we have found that unforgivable sin. Many people often think that they have sinned too far, or they have sinned too much, or they're too far gone. They are just too dirty for Jesus. They are too sinful for Jesus to forgive them. People think that they've committed, com- committed some extremely heinous sin, that there's no way that God could forgive them for what they have done. I've heard war vets say very similar things. The things they did in war or the evil that they saw, the evil that they did, there's just no way that God could forgive them of that. And I'm here to say that is just not true. No matter what your sin is, it can be forgiven. Jesus has already paid the debt for your sin and is offering to forgive you. This is a free gift of salvation. It's available for all. You are not so sinful that God can't save you. I've heard some people say that they were taught that suicide is an unforgivable sin. Now, this comes from a misrepresentation of Catholic doctrine, and it basically goes like this, all right? Catholic doctrine says that we have to confess our sins to a priest in order to be forgiven. Any sins that are not confessed cannot be forgiven and condemn us to hell. And you can't go to to confession after committing suicide. Therefore, that suicide cannot be forgiven, and you will be cast to hell. Again, that line of thinking is false, and it's not even a true representation of Catholic doctrine. It is false. Jesus says the only unforgivable sin is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But what does that mean? What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? How does one do that? Well, going back to this passage, or this scripture in Matthew, gives us a little bit of better understanding. In Matthew 25, we get to read where Jesus talks about, or where Jesus says this. In Matthew's version, Jesus says this when he's responding to the Pharisees' accusation that he performs miracles and casts out demons because he gets power from Satan, from the prince of demons. Now, this was just a little bit ago in this passage, but we have this dinner party in between here. So Matthew kind of skips over the dinner party and goes straight into this, right? This would suggest that specifically for that case with the Pharisees, blaspheming the Holy Spirit is denying that Jesus' power comes from God and saying instead that it comes from Satan. We've also, we also have to understand the role that the Holy Spirit plays. Right? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit's job is to convict us of our sin and point to Jesus as our only source of salvation. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Taking these two points, we can begin to get a better understanding of what it means 
to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit would be a failure to respond to him when he convicts us of our sin and points to Jesus as our only source of salvation. The only unforgivable sin, then, is refusing salvation because the Holy Spirit points to Jesus as salvation. So the only unforgivable sin is refusing to be saved by Jesus. It only makes sense that this is the only unforgivable sin because, in a sense, it's almost like you're refusing to be forgiven. Jesus offers us forgiveness, and we say, nope, I don't want it. When we refuse to be saved, we are not accepting forgiveness. So you can't be forgiven if you, if you won't accept it. So what might this unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit look like in our lives? Well, it might look like self-righteous legalism. It might look like I have to do something to save myself because Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. It might look like others aren't good enough for salvation. They have to do something else first. It is denying that Jesus is good enough That Jesus alone is good enough for our salvation. In John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That means there is no other way. There is nothing else to add to him. He is the only way. Salvation is exclusively through Jesus. But religion tries to say that the gospel is too exclusive. It's too exclusionary. It's offensive because it denies other people's beliefs. What about all those other religions around the world? Those people are going to hell? What about a a faithful Hindu believer in India? Are they going to hell? What about a Buddhist in China? Or a Muslim in Iran? Are they going to hell too? Yes, that is true. If anyone dies without accepting Jesus' offer of salvation then they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit and they will pay for their sins. That is why we share our faith. That's why we acknowledge Jesus in public because we don't want to see others going to hell. This is why we send missionaries all over the world. This is why Jesus told us to make disciples of all nations. Now, Jesus knows that when we do that, when we go out and we proclaim him, when we acknowledge him in public, we are going to make enemies. He knows that people will be offended by the exclusivity of the gospel. So he warns his followers, when you are brought to trial in the synagogues and before rulers and authorities, don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. Now, looking at this, there was something that I noticed just this morning, so I don't have it in my notes, I might stumble over this a little bit, something I noticed just this morning, and it's this this dichotomy, this separation, two different categories, right? We see Jesus talking about those who proclaim him, he will recognize before God's angels. We're standing there at judgment before God. When we proclaim him, Jesus will stand up for us and take the judgment for us. Jesus will proclaim that we are righteous. But if we don't, then we are subject to our own punishment for our own sins. You have that judgment, that, that, that justice playing out right there, contrasted with this right here, where you're standing on trial because of your faith, standing on trial before rulers and authorities. Last week, Jesus said, do not fear those who can only kill your body, but fear the one who can kill your body and then send you to hell. I see this this interesting kind of duality between 
human authority, or what we think of as our authority, the, the authority that religion tries to exert versus God's true authority. Jesus says, when you're brought to trial in the synagogues and before rulers and authorities. Now, the enemy does not like it when we are actively sharing our faith. This is spiritual warfare. The devil knows that he has lost the war, but he is still trying to take down as many people as possible. His ultimate defeat will come in the end, but until then, he's going to fight dirty. We are warriors in this spiritual warfare, and when we are actively out there fighting this war by sharing our faith, by proclaiming Jesus, when we're out there fighting this war, he doesn't like it. The enemy does not like it, and he will attack us. In that time, Jesus was talking to first century Jews. He knew that, that the devil was going to use the religious elites to persecute his believers or his followers. In some places around the world, that's still a possibility or even a probability. But for us, at least right now, that's unlikely that we're going to be brought before religious or governmental authorities to answer for our faith. But on the other hand, several years ago when I was in youth, my mom, one of the youth leaders, asked us, if you were arrested and put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Could the prosecutor prove your guilt by your words and actions? If I'm on trial for being a Christian, I hope the verdict is guilty because I have placed my faith in Jesus and lived in a way that it is obvious for all to see. In those times when you're being persecuted for your faith, Jesus says, don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. Now, earlier I said that the Holy Spirit's job is to convict us of our sin and point us toward Jesus as our only source of salvation. That's what the Holy Spirit does before we're saved. But after we're saved, our relationship with him changes, and he has a different job. And we see here that part of that is teaching us. In this case, specifically, he teaches us what to say when we're being persecuted. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't study our faith or be prepared with a defense for our faith. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to always be prepared to read, or always be ready to explain your hope as a believer. Jesus is, not tell, or Jesus is telling us not to fear persecution. If we take this back to last week's message, if they do kill us, well, we're only united with God in eternity in heaven, in his perfect kingdom. Do not fear persecution because the Holy Spirit will guide us. Religion worries about what other people think. It worries about persecution. Religion denies the deity of Jesus because it makes gods out of everything else. We talked about how religion makes a God out of our self-righteousness. Religion makes a God out of our hypocrisy. Religion makes a God out of the authority that we think we can play over others. And now we see that religion makes a God out of our opinion of other people. Religion makes a God out of our reputation. Religion denies Jesus' deity because it makes a God out of everything else. Christianity simply relies on Jesus' power and his authority. He is God. He is the only God, and everything is under his control. When you are on trial, acknowledge Jesus publicly and allow the Holy Spirit to guide you in what needs to be said. So we get to our application. Our application always comes from our three indicators of a disciple, and that's knowing, being, and doing. So our first application is to know Jesus is God. Today's scripture started with Jesus saying, I tell you the truth. 
we recognize that this statement is redundant because Jesus is perfect and he is sinless. He does not lie. He will never lie. It is outside of his character. He is God and therefore he is the author of truth. It's not only that he does not lie, but Jesus makes truth with his words. He is the author of truth. This also means that if Jesus is God, what he says about eternity is true. Jesus says that the only way to be saved, that he is the only way to be saved from our deserved punishment for our sin. He came and he died in our place. He is our substitution. He paid the price so that we could be forgiven. He offers forgiveness as a free gift. Place your faith in him and be saved. Place your faith in the one true God of the universe and be saved from the sin that separates you from him and condemns you to hell. Place your faith in him and be reconciled to him. Be invited to live with him forever in his perfect eternal kingdom in the new heaven and new earth. Our B application is to be receptive to the Holy Spirit. If you've never surrendered to Jesus in faith, hopefully the Holy Spirit is calling out to you this morning, convicting you of your sin and pointing to Jesus as the only way to be saved. If he's calling out to you, don't ignore him. If you feel him tugging at your heart, don't ignore him. Jesus warns us that the only forgivable sin is failure to respond to the Holy Spirit's call to salvation, and that will condemn you to to hell for all eternity. There we go. But if you are already saved, then the Holy Spirit still speaks to you. He teaches you. He guides you in your daily life. Listening to the Holy Spirit, though, it takes practice. Over time, you can get better at it, but at first, it can be difficult to recognize the voice of God in your life. You can start practicing this skill by building in listening time during your prayer time. Take time to intentionally sit quietly and listen for God. Listen for God's voice. Listen to Him speaking to you in your heart. Then, over time, as you practice that and you learn to recognize God's voice, you will be able to hear him as he's speaking to you, even in the craziness of everyday life. We need to practice listening to the voice of God because when we start facing persecution, the Holy Spirit will speak to us. If we don't know his voice, we might not recognize his voice when he teaches us what to say. And our due application, share your faith. Jesus said, everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, the Son of Man will also acknowledge in the presence of God's angels. This means that we are expected to proclaim the truth of his deity and the salvation so that others will come to know him, or at least they'll know that we are Christians. This does not have to be in the face of persecution, but it could be. This doesn't mean that every, sorry, this does mean that every aspect of our lives should reflect the fact that we are surrendered to Jesus Christ as our Lord. This also means that we talk about him. We share the gospel and we share what he's still doing in our lives. We share his love with others. And of course, we make disciples. So our three application points again. Know that Jesus is God. Be receptive to the Holy Spirit and share your faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you. We praise you that you are the one and only true God. We praise you that that you sent your son Jesus here to take the punishment for our sins. Lord, we pray that you will help us to recognize the truth of your deity. Help us to recognize that you are God, the only God. There's nothing else in our lives that deserves to be worshiped or feared like you. 
God, I pray that you will help us to listen to, the, to your voice. Help us to be receptive to following your teaching. And God, help us as we go out to share our faith with others. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit VictoryBaptistHopeMills.com or Facebook.com slash VBCHopeMills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.